go. Um, thank you everyone for being here and thank you for watching. As you might have noticed, this is not the Benham Lecture Theatre and we are not having our annual barbecue. Uh, obviously, coronavirus has imposed some restrictions on the types of events we can hold, but luckily our panelists who initially agreed to join us for the barbecue are here over Zoom, here to share their experiences in sort of environmental science, conservation, or more broadly, the biological sciences. And so hopefully for members who are sort of at early stages of their career, some of these insights and information will be very useful. And to others, it's just a general point of interest. It's always good to hear about different career paths in general. So I'll do a really brief round of introductions. And then what I might do is get each of you to sort of uh, flesh out those introductions a little bit, talk about some of your background, where you developed interests in your current field, some of your previous positions and all of that. So from my panel, from left to right, we have uh, Vicky Jo Russell, who is a revegetation services manager at Trees for Life currently, but also holds several positions on natural resource management and advisory boards. We have Jody Gates, who is a senior policy officer at the State Department for Environment and Water, that's DEW. We have Dan Rogers, who is a uh, principal ecologist at DEW. And we have Wendy Telfer, who works in environmental policy and implementation in DEW. Um, so Vicky, we might start with you, if you want to sort of give us a bit of a background. Hi, everyone. I'm Vicky Jo Russell. Um, I'm better known as VJ to most people. Um, I currently work for Trees for Life as the Revegetation Services Manager. And what that means is that I manage the tree scheme, the nursery, the seed bank um, for Trees for Life. I also manage quite a few of their climate change resilience programs. Um, and I do quite a bit of community connection, particularly with um, people in the urban environment with native plants and the benefits of native plants. Uh, I, um, I, to start from the start, I loved biology at high school, um, but when I got to university, uh, well, to be honest, I'd applied for a few other things, but um, I decided against those things at the last minute and decided to take some advice from a mentor and go in, and, uh, go in general. I was only 16 when I went to university, so I was pretty young when I got there. Um, and I really wanted to help people, uh, but I also really wanted to help nature. And so I decided to do a double degree in psychology and biology, which was awesome. Um, that was at Flinders. And um, I started doing honours in neurophysiology in schizophrenia research, but I decided instead to do a natural resources degree because over the time at Flinders, I'd really started to understand um, how, yeah, how much trouble the Australian landscape in particular was in. So I decided if it was going to help people and nature, that was the best way to do it, was to actually become a natural resource management person or someone working in the environment. And I've never regretted that decision, although obviously my parents thought I was nuts going from an honours degree back to another undergraduate, but I've never looked back. Um, after I finished uni, I actually got in a combi and drove around Australia for 10 months with my partner because um, I wanted to see all this stuff for myself. I wanted to see it, not wanted to see, I've read about it. Um, and I wanted to see it and feel it and touch it and understand it for myself. And that was really the making of me. And it's also where I made a very strong commitment, personal commitment 
in a river actually in New South Wales to the Australian continent um, that I dedicate the rest of my life to the biodiversity of this continent. And that is what I am halfway <laughs> through doing. Um, when I came back and my colleagues who all know me know that that sounds about right. Um, when I got back to Adelaide, I started uh, work at the Conservation Council as their information officer. Um, it was kind of, you know, it was a front desky job, but it was awesome because I met everyone and I learnt about everything that was going on in the NGO sector. Um, so in one year, you know, I, I had such a fantastic introduction. And at the time, um, which was early 90s, South Australia and in fact the environment sector was really dynamic place. Um, so that was an extraordinary introduction. Um, I then started working for WWF Australia on threatened species recovery, which I did for a very long time. Uh, I was a biodiversity manager at the Conservation Council a little later, and then managed uh, conservation and sustainability policy and planning areas at the Adelaide Zoo. Uh, and now I'm at Trees for Life. And all this time I've been also sitting on advisory boards uh, and doing other bits and pieces. So I'm still doing some of that stuff and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that later, but, but here I am. Um, so that's how I got here. And I'd say the best lesson for how I got here um, was to say yes a lot for the first 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm in my middle of my career is to say no more. <laughs> but at uni, take every experience you can get. That's great. Thank you, Joe. That's quite an impressive list of different positions and uh, different organisations as well. So we might talk about that a little bit later. Jody, we'll move on to you. Yeah, where to start? So um, I, I just developed a passion for outdoors and the natural environment as a kid, really. And I had parents who enjoyed being outdoors and we went and collected wildflowers and did things like that. You're probably not supposed to do anymore, but they weren't experts um, and we didn't go on big camping trips or anything. It's just local around um, where I grew up, Murray Bridge and down the south coast around Middleton. But as a young kid, it was enough to, to spawn my interest. And then I actually started doing something a lot more controversial. I started collecting bird's eggs as like a seven or eight year old <laughs> and um, frowned upon probably these days, but I did that for, I don't know, maybe five or so years before I, I realized it's perhaps not the best thing to do. But what it did do is hook me into nature and really my, you know, develop my observation skills of birds and what was going on around me. So I found that really quite exciting as a young kid. Um, at the time it was, it was the seventies. So it was a while ago. There were only four or five TV stations and there wasn't really much on offer in this sort of field that uh, we're in, but, there were a couple of shows that really caught my eye. One was called Skippy. Um, I don't even know if younger crew at uni have even heard of it these days, but they probably have. It's worth having a look. Um, and also Harry Butler was a naturalist who did a um, program called In the Wild. And everywhere he went, he turned over rocks and had lizards and snakes. And, you know, it was just all perfect. It was and that really spawned my interest. So I think I was, at that age, I decided I wanted to be a ranger. So for me, it was a pretty clear path from a young age, which made it a lot easier. And at the time, there was a course, Conservation Park Management at the Uni of SA, which um, was what I needed to do locally in Adelaide. So I pursued that, I managed to get into that, I shifted down there when I was 17 and did, did that course. And 
you know, the rest is sort of history, as they say. But, you know, at that time, I, I, did, I didn't do a lot of extra, you know, but I did what I could. I joined a Friends of Parks group and I did go on one biological survey with the department um, in the course of the undergraduate degree. And they would, that wasn't a huge amount, but it, it allowed me to meet some people in the agency and start forming some of those sort of connections and getting to know people a little bit, which all helps later on. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a job as a ranger pretty promptly after that. Um, and I went down to Western Kangaroo Island, which um, was a fabulous experience. So I guess one of the take homes for me from that um, for young people is if you get an opportunity to go out and work in a region, it might be a bit remote. You might feel like you haven't got friends and family close enough or, you know, cinemas and pubs and all those things you might really like in your life, but the experiences can be amazing. You know, I had five years at Flinders Chase and in my first 12 months, I lived down at Cape Dakuti in one of the old lighthouse colliers for about six months. So, you know, there was no TV, there was nothing down there. I was 22, but you know, it's some of the best times I've had. So um, from that, I went more into sort of ecology, wildlife management type roles. I've stayed within the department ever since. So I didn't jump straight into the sort of more policy type role I'm in now. I don't know that that would be a choice from the, certainly not when you're younger, but it was a fairly logical progression that fitted in with my, um, yeah, my stages of life that you, you progress through. Yeah, it definitely sounds like being uh, isolated in a regional fieldwork position is desirable to being isolated at home right now. <laughs> so. I think that's not looking too bad, even if it's uh, far away. All right. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jody. And we'll move on to Dan. There we go. Yeah, it's interesting. Listen to VJ and Jody, um, how people sort of pick up an interest in this stuff, I guess. Um, I mean, as a young lad, I grew up in sort of the outer suburbs these days, but it was very, very peri-urban back in my, when I was young. Um, so sort of, uh, Moana, Seaford area I grew up in, McLaren Vale, and back then it was just, just opening up to suburbs, and so there's still a fair, fair bit of scrub, and still a lot of open country, a lot of sheep country down there. So I spent a lot of time in my youth, you know, chasing brown snakes and paddocks and that sort of thing, um, doing all sorts of crazy stuff that kids do. Um, and But I guess, you know, I grew up on a diet of things like Harry Butler. <laughs> the other one was, um, you know, all those David Attenborough um, documentaries started coming out at that time. The really first ones like Life on Earth and those sorts of things were about that era. And mm. so I grew up on a diet of that stuff. And, you know, mum and dad used to take us camping all the time. You remember some great times down in the lower Glenelg River when I was a kid. Um, good fun. Um, but thinking back on it now, all that stuff sort of just um, entered me through osmosis more than anything else. And I can't remember as a child ever thinking, yeah, you know what, That's, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So it's just one of those things that you sort of grow up surrounded in it and it becomes, it's almost like um, just what happened. You know, you don't really think, you know, that it's anything particularly special. I didn't think it was anything particularly special. It's just where you grew up. And I think now, like I live in the city now and I think back when I go see my folks and look at that environment, even now, like particularly that coastal environment down that way. And it's pretty spectacular, a stunning country. But at the time, you don't even think too much about it. It's just where you grow up, isn't it? Um, so it wasn't really until um, I got to university and 
Uh, so through high school, I really didn't had no idea what my career was going to be. I was flip flopping all over the place. I wanted to be a professional basketball player at one stage, but you know, limitations. Um, <laughs> my height. Yes. So you know, I didn't really know what I was, where I was going. I was you know, floating around a bit, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> trying to enjoy myself as a teenager as much as anything. Um, and it wasn't till, and this is kind of where the epiphany moment was, I guess. I was in second year at Flinders doing a science degree and I still didn't know what brand of science I wanted to do. I wanted to be a scientist, just was flowing through university, getting a degree. And there's a lecturer there, he's not there anymore, George Massimoti was his name was. And he, he was a um, deep sea marine biologist. And he, so he was the guy who drove those deep sea remote submarines, you know, off, off the Marianas Trench and places like that. And, um, and he just opened my eyes to how, how little we know about the world, about the natural world. It's just crazy. It just blew my mind. I thought, you know, people have been studying this stuff for hundreds of years. There's not much more to know. So being a, a natural scientist is just tweaking at the edges. And so he just opened my eyes to how little we know about the natural world and how much more there is to discover and, and, and learn. Um, so, yeah, did a science degree and really opened my eyes to that stuff. Um, was still sort of floating a little bit. Um, I... I decided that I was going to be a scientist and an applied scientist, an applied ecologist. Um, probably uh, when I was deciding what to do for my honours degree, I ended up doing my honours degree on something completely different. I ended up doing my honours degree on um, the energetics of sea star locomotion, um, <laughs> which was fun. It was crazy. Um, and then did a PhD with Dave Payton at Adelaide Uni on, um, on bird ecology. And it was really only when I started that PhD with Dave that I really started getting into um, birds and and that sort of uh getting really was teeth really stuck into natural history as well so i guess you know i guess what i guess my career went on to a phd um did some postdocs after that so i've had a for most of my career i've been in academia rather than in government or other spheres um and i guess going through that particularly undergraduate and postgraduate um experience um when people well in my experience at least, and I can't speak for that, um, what you end up doing for your honours degree or your postgraduate degree even doesn't lock you in for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> so people tend to stress about that stuff a little bit, about what they end up doing their degree in um, and, you know, thinking that's where they're, you know, they're narrowing their options in terms of forging a path. But certainly in my experience, I just, you know, I opened my eyes to a whole bunch of things and just got a whole bunch of really cool experiences. It taught me a lot about how to do science and and about natural history and those sorts of things, but didn't necessarily lead to a particular career path. Having said that, I, am, I was and still am very resistant to specialise in anything, and that doesn't necessarily suit everyone. <laughs> so, so I've been really, um, I guess I've really forced that issue personally and professionally to ensure that I've never been pigeonholed at something, and I've always been had my eyes open to all sorts of opportunities and interests, and that's kind of suits me. Um, so yeah, I floated around in academia for a while. I did a few different postdocs in different fields. Went to overseas and did a postdoc in southern Sweden. And that was interesting um, because I guess I was I was in an environment, in a culture in in Australia, a, a conservation culture, where um, when you were pushed to uh, to answer the question, "Is it trying to save?" It was a pretty um. I think, I think there was a fairly general culture around we're trying to say what was there, like before whitefields come along, before Europeans came along um, and, and stuffed everything up. That was kind of the default position for a lot of applied ecologists and a lot of conservation biologists at the time and a lot of conservationists at the time. Um, 
And, and you know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought real hard about beyond that, to be honest, until I went to Sweden. And you appreciate that how much conservation, desirable conservation outcomes are driven as much by what people want, you know, that sort of really cultural element to it. And just going to a place which had been modified by humans and by agriculture in this instance for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years in some instances, just puts all that sort of stuff around, you know, we want it to be natural, just throws it all out the window. <laughs> the, the species I was working on in Sweden, white stork, um, was only in Sweden because of people opening up the country for agriculture in the 16th century. And so it was completely driven by human agricultural activity. The only fact it was there because people were farming. Um, and there were, you know, even though this thing was close to extinction in Sweden, there were 300,000 of them, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres away. And so there wasn't a species, you know, a global species conservation issue here. It's just that people in Sweden like storks. And so they were spending a lot of money trying to conserve this species in this country. So I really opened my eyes to that element of conservation that it's actually a pretty, um, it's a pretty lazy position to just say we want it to be natural. It just, you know, it just really opened my eyes to thinking about this stuff much more deeply about what it is we're actually trying to conserve. So that was a really opening experience for me. Um, the other opening experience in my career was when I got back to Australia and, and went back to university as a postdoc on a Kurong project, on a big Kurong project, and found myself really struggling with the, the environment. Like the people there were really great, I got really close mates from that experience. A lot of really good scientists came out of that program. But the driver for what they were doing was primarily being driven by um, high-quality high publications in scientific literature, forging that academic path, career pathway as much as anything else and seeing that as the outcome. And I just remember this, I just remember this moment crystal clear where we were discussing this and you know, sorting bugs or whatever it was we were doing. And that discussion came up. I just had this lightning bolt moment of, are you kidding me? Is this what we're here for? <laughs> so it sort of really jaded me a bit to that pathway. And I think um, I think there are massive opportunities in academia to make a big difference, a significant difference. There's a massive role to play in academia and making a difference that we can often be hamstrung within government. But it's um, particularly young career, early career researchers just need to be really aware of that, of that, you know, trying to get that balance between forging an academic career pathway, which is really, really hard and has all these other drivers for success, trying to balance that with actually making that difference and actually being, you know, having impact in what you're trying to do with the stuff that you care about. I didn't go that pathway for a bunch of reasons and that was one of them. Got a job in government, um, worked for Jody for a little while, <laughs> um, doing conservation planning, which is really good. So there's sort of some of the science between conservation planning and that really opened my eyes to both some of that decision-making around conservation, like why we do certain things and what the, the logic behind the decisions we make, um, but also that interaction. The biggest lesson for me was that interaction between science and how decisions are actually made in the real world. So within government even, those kinds of decisions are made are, are bound by a whole range of other things, politics, finances, management, there's a whole range of things, but also that engagement with the community, what's possible, um, in landscapes that have humans in them and they're working landscapes. And so it really opened my eyes to the role that science plays within that really complex and messy and real um, world that we live in. So there's some really, really good valuable lessons for me through that career pathway, I think. And I think there's, um, there's some really valuable things that others can learn from that 
whether or not they choose to remain in academia or go into um, government or no government roles in conservation. Um, those sort of lessons can be applied in a whole range of environments, I think. Great. And I think that, that mostly answers uh, one of the, the questions I had for later as well, which was going to be about sort of the transition from, yeah, that academic pathway to a more government-based approach. And it seems like, yeah, the, the, the combination of the natural environment as well as the human-centric aspect of it as well is, uh, is sort of behind that. And yeah, sort of in my, in my research studying wildlife trade, I got into ecology because I had no interest in humans. And then suddenly you study the wildlife trade, which you, you cannot ignore the interaction between human behavior and, and, and ecological processes. So I'm, I'm definitely sort of see, see where the appeal is in, in that side of it, for sure. Um, thanks, Dan. And we will move on to Wendy. Um, yeah, so I probably came a slightly different path to um, all of the other folk, uh, very good natural historians growing up, I think, whereas I was um, more a city kid that was into issues and, um, you know, at a pretty young age, I went to the Environmental Youth Alliance that was, you know, inspired by David Suzuki and it was all about, you know, much more save the planety and I had no idea about any species that existed. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it was much more kind of an issues focus that drove me to then really take up environmental science at uni. And, um, and I guess that's where I got exposed to all of these amazing naturalists um, and got really inspired by getting to know, you know, critters and landscapes. And um, I mean, I was obviously always enjoyed being in the bush growing up and camping and everything. But I guess at that real level of understanding and knowing what's out there, that's a kind of mind blowing thing to kind of suddenly get exposed to yeah, not just all of looking at all of those things, but also the fantastic people that are really, I don't know, naturalists are just awesome people in general, I think. <laughs> so they're really good people to hang out with. Um, so I guess, yeah, then I got more into that and did my honours in botany. Um, and then I did a PhD in the Northern Territory in Arnhem Land on um, rock wallabies. So I sort of jumped from a bit from botany to zoology. I thought it would be fun to... After doing botany, I thought oh, I'll work on something that moves because it would be a bit more exciting. And then um, realised it was all, you know, chopping up poo and working on in the middle of the night trying to track nocturnal animals. And yeah, it was quite hard work. So um, again, I probably wasn't good enough at the, you know, looking at the detail. So I um, scrambled it up and did a lot of the PhD on indigenous knowledge of these um, very little-known rock wallabies. And that was, you know. A super humbling and refreshing experience because it was really saying, you know, talking with um, a linguist to um, particularly old men who, you know, spent all of their lives learning and hunting um, these rock wallabies in Arnhem Land. And so, you know, it was just, it was pretty mind boggling to, to see the depth of their knowledge. And, you know, I was chopping up poo trying to work up, out what these things were eating. And then these men would say, oh, well, they eat that until it's about two inches high and then the seeds get stuck in their throat and they won't eat it anymore. Um, you know, so it was, I was just sort of staggered that we could have had this ecological knowledge for the whole of Australia if we kind of settled differently. Um, anyway, so it was a, it was a really amazing experience and um, I started doing a bit more work on, you know, emus and things with those Aboriginal communities. Um, so it was a really turned into a recording knowledge kind of um, project. Uh, and I think fundamentally at that point I was like, right, what do I do next? Do I stick with science? Um, 
do I stay up here and keep working with Aboriginal communities? Because I feel like you don't want to be another blow-in white fella who isn't there for the long haul and learns language and all of that. Um, you know, and I guess I just sort of went back to my roots, which is probably those issues that drive me and trying to make change and trying to um, fundamentally influence and, um, yeah, change policy was probably what really called me the most. And so I got a job, um, was actually federal government, the Indigenous Land Corporation, which was about working with Aboriginal groups on land management in um, New South Wales and Queensland. And then, yeah, working nationally with that same organisation. So that was, yeah, a big shift into sort of federal government um yeah so it was a, it was a big divide in my road of i think i naturally actually actually am not that great a scientist like a lot of people are very good at doing the details and digging in and i'm just like whoa let's pull it up pull it up pull it up you know like i like i like the big picture and i guess that's how i've landed in planning which is really um trying to work out what what is the big picture what are we prioritizing looking forward a long way forward or looking short term forward where should we be putting our effort? What should we be influencing um, in, you know, in policy and um, what people are doing on the ground? So um, that's led me back from the Indigenous Land Corporation. I then had seven years in the southeast as the in, in planning and you know, evaluation there, and now I've come back to Adelaide Mount Lofty doing the same sort of role, so manager of planning and evaluation for Adelaide Mount Lofty. So. Yeah, it, 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 so it is a funny path of trying to um, work out what's the best of your skills that you can put in and make the most, you know, change. So I totally respect that we need awesome scientists who have that attention to detail, like Dan said, who are wanting to dig in and be specialists. Um, and then I, I, it's also that the other exciting thing of working, I think, in government and in non-government in conservation, but I mean, I said there's fantastic people in there is also that yeah it is that collaborating and working together and trying to make change together and that really excites me I think um, and even managing people and trying to motivate them to do their best in you know every day at work um, yeah it's a, a different focus for your energy but it, it, it does it's pretty rewarding yeah that's great and uh, it's really interesting how you know you've all got quite different uh experiences in terms of why you got to where you are and so sort of, you know some of you have had pure academic uh, academic roles government roles non-government roles uh but there's i guess like a common theme of uh not being afraid of lateral movement between different different places and different types of positions and different types of careers and as well as like a big a big focus on trying to actually sort of implement and see real world outcomes behind what you're doing so it's really interesting to see that sort of, yeah, approaching the sort of common commonality, which is really cool. Um, and right. can I just say, it's, it's more than um, not being frightened. And I think you do have to be very courageous in this, in this field in different ways. It's seeking it. Because right. every time you understand someone else's perspective, you are better at what you do. So take the opportunities. For sure. And I, I'd also like to... Um, Double what Dan said about it's not what you work on, at, you know, like your PhD and your honours and that. Um, you know, once I got to the federal government, it's literally that you can think and write and talk and, you know, they're the skills that you learn in uni that, um, yeah, are so fundamental. Like, and, yeah, you, you, that's what people go, oh, you can think. And that, you know, I don't know, it, that sounds really simplistic, but you, it doesn't really matter, you know, that I've done a PhD on rock all of these. 
is yeah people really value um that yeah yeah and i guess especially with a, a postgraduate pathway because it can be so specific and you know sometimes three four plus years studying one particular topic you know there's the temptation to like say get get really uh sort of specific and narrow down or something but yeah it's definitely a skills-based mm. uh, process um, so i've been in roles now where i've been managing and recruiting people for probably 15 years and for me absolutely wendy's spot on i don't actually care what you've done it in uh, for me it's much more important um that you did it that you committed to it that you finished it because that's really important for me to see that you can commit to something and, and make it happen. And also that you've um, made attempts to apply it, to network, to get it, get it out there. That's what I'm looking for. So yeah, I don't, I don't care how specific it is. Choose your subject so you can seek, succeed in getting it done and make the most of it when you're in it. And I would agree with Wendy and try not to pursue nocturnal animals. I, <laughs> I did MSC on Bushstone Curlews on Kangaroo Island while I was over there rangering. I started that and yeah, in hindsight, I thought, what am I doing? I'm not a night owl. I'm a morning person. <laughs> yeah, you have a very unique sleep pattern. <laughs> Anyone used to night shifts? Yeah. Awesome. So I might move on to questions submitted by the, the Biology Society members. Um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll start with just general questions that will apply to each of you. Once again, we'll just go in sequence uh, and then I'll, I'll get to more specific questions based on your individual careers. So starting here with uh, regarding your current roles. So we'll, we'll talk about your previous roles sort of a little bit later. Regarding your current roles, what is both the most rewarding thing and the most challenging thing? If, if they are in fact two different aspects, they might be the same. So we might start with Vicky Jo. Uh, my most rewarding is probably twofold. One is I get to work with landholders on revegetation projects across the state and the conversation that I have with them and the support that we can provide them to make uh, change for the land they love is fantastic. And just, just recently, it's a very acute example. Um, I had a lot of conversations with people post the bushfires over summer. Um, they came to us and said, look, this is what's happened. We've lost everything. Uh, and one of the first things they did was get on the phone and call us because they knew that, you know, you can't buy time. You need to get those plants back in the ground and they knew those plants were going to be vital for their land and for the local wildlife. So to help them get back on their feet and get their kind of farming and wildlife plans back on track is a very, um, very rewarding thing to do. Um, in turn, uh, and also I, I love working with the growers. So these are people who volunteer to grow in their backyard to be able to provide seedlings to farmers at a very low cost. About 20% of our growers um, end up going out and planting on the landholders' properties. You know, sometimes they send us pictures of barbecues and all that sort of stuff, and families can forge a great relationship. But again, it's that very heartfelt moment when they send you a picture of what their current seedlings look like, or equally, it's not going well, and they're so cut up about that. 
um, it's very raw. So to see the light in people's eyes um, when they succeed or when they're hurting because they really want to make a difference and something's getting in the way, that can feed the soul. So that's my most rewarding in my current role. Um, most challenging, far out, it's a big list. Um, the, the fact that people still don't get it, I guess. Um, you know, policymakers, planners, funders at large scale still don't get this, even though, you know, so many land managers do, even though so many citizens in Australia do. At the end of the day, we're still not seeing the kind of policy planning and funding support we need to make the difference that is vital for this country to have a future. And you get that reinforced almost every day at work in different ways. So you have to be extremely um, thick skinned and insanely optimistic to keep going with great verve which fortunately I am, <laughs> <laughs> or I've learned to be. Today. <laughs> what was that, Dan? Today. <laughs> I always be, Jay. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, I'm only extremely early in sort of a career path, but I'm already experiencing that the sort of the need to just sort of hammer home a certain point until certain stakeholders uh, sort of take hold of it and, and, and start running with it and start making decisions with it. And, and I, that's something that I seriously underestimated is just convincing groups of people that a certain problem is a problem and that we should do something about it is you know when i went into research i thought that was just a given and and sort of, you know the other oh, challenging part will be you know like we said earlier the small details but no it's actually sort of engaging groups and convincing them that something needs to be done so definitely agree there and and you might you might achieve that um i mean i was involved in a national strategy which i'm still very proud of and we went around the country over 18 months we spoke to 40 odd communities across the country. This was a policy that most Australians, whether you were coastal New South Wales, inland Queensland, um, Kimberley, Western Australia, thought was a really good idea. You have a change of government, it's gone in seven days. So, you know, it's not just convincing them, it's having to do so over and over and over again, where different influences are coming in and changing momentum or, or direction or, or whatever those obstacles become. So, yeah, your ability to, to breathe deep grieve that and keep going is really important. Mm. And I guess that sort of stresses the importance of, you know, emerging uh, ecologists and environmentalists and, and, and everything, because, you know, if, if these things need continued and renewed sort of prioritization, then we, you know, even though great work has been done and is continued to be uh, completed, we need, we need that sort of future, uh, someone to hold the torch, I guess. All right, uh, Jerding, go to you. Yeah, thanks, Anne. So, I guess at, at this at this stage of my work, um, what what is probably most rewarding is still working with you know passionate people and and great people. I think that's something that we take for granted in the environment sector. But a lot of the people we you know that we work with and come to work every day in the office, even for me these days, they're still passionate about it. 
it's not just a job. I mean, obviously we all have moments where it's just a job, but so I really find that rewarding. Um, the other thing is I didn't set out to be a career public servant, but here I am still in the public service nearly 30 years later. Um, so there's a, the rewarding part of that for me is that, um, having worked in the regions on the ground, doing delivery of projects, working with you know visitors in parks through the threatened species programs and all sorts of things is, got a fairly decent sort of broad background of experience with hands-on and now more recently over the last decade through to work in head office in policy and programs and strategy, so different roles. But I really find it uh, rewarding to be able to impart that corporate knowledge that I've got. You know, there's, it's remarkable how long some things can take to eventuate and how relevant information for things that you've picked up or were part of or experienced 10 years ago, you know, can become today. Uh, and you don't really set out to do it, but you realize that not, you know, increasingly less people seem to be carrying that knowledge through the system. Uh, and you see people starting to reinvent wheels and you say, well, hold on, I know, you know, I know something that was done around this sort of thing. We can go back to that. So, and it's really nice to be able to share that experience with people particularly supporting regional people who are out delivering stuff on the ground, sort of have to get my satisfactions through them in a sense, because I'm not doing that myself anymore. But yeah, imparting that knowledge and working with people is really rewarding. The flip side of that is the big challenge personally has been, you know, at least a decade of pretty severe cuts and staff numbers dwindled. Uh, it's really, really sort of come home to me in the last few months because the team I'm in has done a great deal of work supporting particularly Kangaroo Island with the post-fire recovery. And, and it dawned on me through that process that there's less than half the staff at Flinders Chase now compared to when I was there in the 90s, mid-90s. And, you know, when you reflect that we weren't twiddling our thumbs back then, we had a lot to do for visitors, for managing, the, you know, the natural resources and now there's half as many. It's a real, it is a real struggle. There's too much for them to do, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I find that really challenging. And I guess get touches on what Vicky Joe was talking about is why is that? Like, we why aren't we getting why aren't we getting the support from the community broadly? Um, what is it about the, today's society that it's okay with that? Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of work to do in that space, and it's something that we've we've shifted our focus to quite a bit more recently. You know, try and understand the role of values in the decision making um, is something that has become increasingly important for us. And I guess that's been one of my big big lessons, which you know touches on parts of what the other guys have said. That certainly I used to think that decisions would be evidence based and. You know, I remember even as a, when I worked as a regional ecologist, it's like, if only you had more knowledge of, for this, you know, particular threatened Mallee bird or whatever it was, we'd be right. But come to realise that, yeah, that's really important. It, it, you need more knowledge. You know, that goes without saying. But knowledge in itself isn't, you know, what's required to influence, you know, the system or the people or the decision makers. So, yeah, so anyway, that's a challenge these days. And we certainly still retain hope that it'll bounce and we'll start getting more focus on the environment again in years to come. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, sort of, I guess the, 
the people who are now in the process of finishing their degrees or you know going on to postgraduate or going into a ranger program or whatever they might be doing um i guess all all, all they've known in in their sort of tertiary education is that sort of gradual cutting of, of services so um so i think you know when things do start to swing the other way i think there's going to be uh, there's going to be sort of uh, a whole sort of host of ecologists sort of waiting to sort of chop at the bit and uh and, and a bunch of us yeah and a bunch of us or buggers hanging out to impart their knowledge and mentor. It's worth adding that even when I was, you know, uh, at that young age and through my teens wanting to be a ranger, you know, even then there was a lot of sort of commentary that, oh, you know, it's hard to get a ranger's job. You'd be lucky to get, you know, one of those. But I think you still just have to follow those sort of passions and dreams. And, you know, from my experience, you know, you sort of, encourages you to do the right things to be in the right places to meet the right people and all of that part of yeah getting to getting into the sort of things you want to want to do but you don't as dan also said you don't you don't stay there you can start with these dreams and then you know move around do different things yeah for sure awesome and dan we'll uh, move on to you um what was the first part of the question what the most challenging and the most rewarding parts of that year. <laughs> most rewarding. I'll start. With, I'll start with most rewarding again. Um, I guess there's two things, and you know, all cards on the table. I entered science. I think um, was it you said it, Wendy. Entered science. I know it was you, Adam. Entered science with a, you know, lifelong introvert and thinking it'd be great to do things that didn't involve talking to too many humans. Um, <laughs> And my PhD was a lot of that. <laughs> I spent a lot of time living in an echo shed all by myself, which was, yeah, had its moments. Um, but so, so I guess two things that are most rewarding. One, one is as a natural scientist working in government, um, but all natural scientists, the fact that you get to think about some bloody amazing plants and animals and ecosystems as your gig, and occasionally, rarely these days for me, but occasionally you get out to actually go look at them and get paid for it. <laughs> um, I mean, I just had moments during my, during, you know, when I was a postdoc at Adelaide Uni and I'd be sitting on a beach in the Coorong watching shorebirds all day. And I thought, you know, you get paid for this? You serious? <laughs> you know? So I think, you know, even though, and I'll get to the challenges, the big challenges in a minute, and even though they, they absolutely weigh heavily and, and it's, yeah, I'll get to that. <laughs> um, just reflecting on the fact that you're in, an, in an, um, a, a career that allows you to reflect on some things that you're passionate about and are really quite special. Mm. Plant sounds. I mean, you know, Jodie and I are doing a lot of work at the moment on Kangaroo Island Dunnet. I mean, what a beast. And we get to spend our days thinking about this thing, <laughs> you know. So that's, that's actually really, really fortunate. And I think we just need to think, you know, when things get you down a bit, you need to reflect on that a little bit. But, the, you know, talking about, going back to talking about being an introvert, the other thing that surprised me in my current role, where even though, you know, I, I bring science to the department and science to decision-making, I don't do much science. The vast majority of my role is talking to people, talking to people inside government, in the non-government sector, and particularly in the academic sector, and getting all those people to talk to each other. And that's pretty much what I do all day. And 
one of the most rewarding things of, that, of all that isn't so much the science that gets delivered out of that process and how that's used, but the people involved and the relationships built through that process. And it's just been incredibly rewarding to meet people in all stages of their life and their career, just young people and people who are at the end of their career and just how incredibly passionate they are and that that's their number one driver in their career and in their life. And it just came to, it really came to the fore <laughs> and I might get a bit emotional <laughs> um, when the fires were kicking off on Kangaroo Island and, um, and it was devastating for all of us, you know, it was a really, really emotionally challenging time. But I was getting phone calls from people from all across Australia while the fire was going, you know, pretty senior professors from the University of Australia saying, what can I do? And that was just because we built that relationship over time and, and they just cared. They just cared. They really cared about this stuff. And so, yes, yeah, it just gave me a chance to reflect on that stuff that there's the, particularly people I've encountered and early Micri researchers in academia, how just deeply passionate they are about this stuff and how committed they are. And it's, um, and what, when it gets really, really tough, reminding yourself that you belong to this community that, just really gives a shit <laughs> and they're all in it together is really powerful. Yeah. And it can be really powerful when things are going bad, like when these fires kicked off, just knowing that you're, you're not out there on your own trying to save the world. Like this, you're in this community that's all pulling together. It was really, really quite powerful at the time. So that's, yeah, that's actually really rewarding is being part of that community on a daily basis and, or, you know, doing things that you all really care about. It's really good. Um, the, the biggest challenge for me is, um, I guess I'm a bit like Wendy in some ways and I think big picture and see how everything's connected. And when you let your brain go <laughs> and you start to appreciate how big the problem is that we're dealing with, it can be pretty overwhelming. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, well, I am partly talking about things like, well, wow, those fires in Kangaroo are really bad and these things are threatened, threatened things are in trouble. But when you really start stretching your brain and you think, you know, this is actually, we're dealing with um, how global economic structures work, how <laughs> our human populations work, how power works, you know, how the, 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 the inequity of how decisions are made, who gets to have influence over how decisions are made at global levels, that stuff can just blow your head off, you know, make your head explode. And it can, it can make you feel pretty um, small and ineffective. <laughs> where my brain goes those places so I guess rather than leaving it there and just thinking it's still gonna it's not worth it um, I guess the way I try and overcome that is a number of ways one is it's also been really interesting coming from a natural history natural sciences background and putting my brain to some of those much bigger and more complex and human oriented problems and you appreciate when you deep dive into that stuff that again there are a whole bunch of really clever people trying to tackle those problems head on, but that's their career <laughs> is trying to figure out well, how do you influence um, the inequity of power and how those decisions are made and how do you influence um, the relationship between economics and the environment and those sorts of things. And there's people who are dedicating their careers to that stuff. And so being able to tap into that expertise has been really pretty rewarding as well. Just something I've never really thought about, but really, really quite valuable. Um, but the other thing that I try and keep an eye on is, the scale at which you feel you can make a difference. And even though those big problems are out there and they're out there for people like me and I really have to check myself when I get into that space, being able to draw back to positions 
where you know you can be your influence, even if it's, you know, your local land care group, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're fixing up that patch of scrub down the road. Even if it's like people, like at the moment, you know, doing everything we can to save a threatened species that only occurs on the west end of the Kangaroo Island, just one species. And we are actually bearing, actually having a significant impact, positive impact for that one critter. Um, so even though, you know, not one of us can solve all the problems of the world, and that can be quite daunting when you consider that, being able to reflect on where you have, where you can bear direct influence as part of that community. And it, and it is tangible. You can make, actually make a tangible difference at particular scales, and we all have. Um, so it's, yeah, worth just checking, um, you know, reflecting on where you have bear, had a difference when you tend to get overwhelmed by the scale of the whole problem, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I absolutely agree in terms of, uh, I mean, I think to some extent people who go into this line of work and career, they're ambitious sort of by default, I think. So you, you know, most people get into con conservation because they want to save the world, um, or, or something to that effect. Uh, and so then when you can't, you know, when you, when you, uh, perceive that you can't get there it, it can be quite sort of disheartening so yeah like partitioning the problem and just sort of looking at aspects of the problem that you you can fix this week or you can fix this year and putting these sort of realistic milestones in place i think is really important i think for your um the sort of uh you know the the feedback mechanism of getting that you know seeing a positive impact and then it giving you a fresh dose of motivation and keep going and keep going Whereas if you have this you know, really large scale, long-term ambition that you're not going to see an immediate impact on for, for years and years, you sort of need something in the meantime. I think yeah. that's a really it's, good point. Without, without wanting to take too much airspace, I mean, the, the, my comment about the reward about being part of a community is involved in that as well. It's just reflecting on, it's not all up to you, you know, and there are all those other people around doing their bit. Um, and, and also, you know, intergenerational as well, the people cut, there's people, that will be after you, will be doing their bit as well. And, you know, so, so it's be, yeah, it, it can feel overwhelming because you feel um, like it's down to you and you're, you're alone in this space, but just reflecting that you've got the community around you all doing their bit as well helps. Yeah. That's great. Barbara Hardy, who was one of my early kind of mentors said to me that um, significant change takes about 10 years. So when you want to pick some significant change, that's the kind of commitment that you're looking at. So you need to be able to pace yourself and keep up your love and passion for that long. But it also says, well, how many of those are you going to be able to take in a lifetime? But if we all did seven, <laughs> that'd be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was really good to keep you real. Yeah. And I think especially now more than ever, you know, we live in an age of sort of, instantaneous information and results you know we're we're all talking to each other right now in real time and we can go on a phone and use an app and instantaneously get what we want from that app and so i think sort of rewiring our minds to sort of yeah think about those longer term things that aren't necessarily as immediately satisfying is, is quite important yeah right so we'll go to wendy yeah, well, I'd probably, um, to start with what's most rewarding, I'd probably build on um, what the others have said. That it, For me, a lot of it's about people. Um, 
I really get my energy out of the collaborating and facilitating community discussions about issues and um, and work and influencing, finding ways, you know, working internally, um, working with community, trying to actually find ways to influence and, and make good decisions happen. So I think that's, for me, yeah, it's part of that making a feeling like you're making a difference um, and doing what you care about. So that's probably um, the big picture for me. And then the challenging bit, um, I have to say water planning for me is really hard. I, I, have, I, mean, I haven't done it for a long time, but having to manage water planning, it's a really hard space. You can't win. Um, you know, you've got a state that wants economic development. I totally get that. Um, and yet we give so much water to, um, yeah, industry essentially, irrigation, everything. And it's at, and it means that, you know, wetlands in the southeast don't get that water. So there is this real, I guess it's a real values conflict about um, how do you get that balance? And, and it's a conflict space. Like I'm not a natural conflict person. And so to have to facilitate really tough, ugly, often ugly meetings with um, conflicting interests and the environment voice is very quiet in those rooms. You know, you've got competing industry voices that are loud and they're what the government hears as well. So I think that for me, just at the moment, is probably my hardest challenge is, um, yeah, that space. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think sort of learning how to disagree with you know a different stakeholder or, or something like that is a really valuable skill yeah and and you do have to sort of train yourself to lean into conflict and realize that people are there because they're engaged and they care about um you know and most people do still have values and a love of the environment underneath it's us how do we tap that and make these balanced conversations and um hopefully make you know everyone winners in it if we can yeah, I think especially if we all go through the pipeline of a some sort of ecology-based degree where you often spend your time with relatively like-minded people to, to get in a space where you're you're not always in contact with those people, I think it's quite important as well. Um, yeah, and it does. It comes back to what Vijay said about, you know, yeah, we have all this evidence <laughs> and yet we can't change people's minds. So what, we're doing something wrong in our influencing skills. Um, that people can't see more balanced view and I guess it is often that short-term gain economically over potentially long-term system landscape change and things so yeah it's, it's a tough gig. I really like the term you've used there about leaning into conflict uh, and I think the longer you're in this the more you understand that you can learn a great deal about you know, through conflict so I'd really encourage people not to be frightened to see that as a learning opportunity and to keep digging until you can find that common point of interest. And from there, you can build something different together. But yeah, a lot of people do find that extremely intimidating, especially when they're early on. Mm. Okay, um, so I'll go through one more general question and we might go in reverse order. So Wendy, we'll start with you this time. Um, so the question is, what are the pros and cons of private sector versus public sector conservation? Yeah, it's probably a good segue from that last point I made because I think some of the downside of the public sector is you do, you are a public servant. You have to hold the government's view um, or expel the government's view even when it may have any, you know, a conflict with what you really feel. So I think um, in the non-government 
sector, sorry, generally, this is generalizing, you are better paid and you have better job security in the public sector. But in, in an NGO or a, in the private sector, you're, you maybe can stick closer often to um, your own values, you know, and, and speak your own mind. You're more agile, you can um, be a bit more frank and fearless in what you say. Is that true, VJ? Maybe we should jump to you. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I think it depends very much on the minister of the day. <laughs> Great. Right, we'll move on to Ben. Um, private versus public conservation. Um, I guess I'll, I, I can speak from the experience both of being in government for more than 10 years now, but also at being really closely I guess having close relationships with people in the NGO sector and the academic sector in particular. Um, and I just, I guess I'll back up Wendy's point um, around the, the challenge and, you know, I'm pretty good at riding this boundary <laughs> um, of um, representing the government of the day's views. And that can be really, I mean, it, you know, I, I'll be honest and say it's been pretty increasingly challenging. Um, uh, not, not only because of this, particular government, but just because of the way politics is going in Australia broadly. Um, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting, well, interesting, challenging um, evolution of how, how politics works in Australia, being within it, being in a public service. Just, just the role of public servants in that, in that discussion has changed. So, um, so yeah, so that's been, that, that's, that's a challenge for working in the public service. Having said that, the reason I, one of the reasons I entered the public service is because um, the distance between the information used to guide a decision and the decision mm. is small. <laughs> um, so I went, when I, just before I joined government and I was in academia, I was doing a lot of work for government, a lot of scientific work, a lot of research and doing reports and the whole caper and going to lots of meetings with government people and telling them, here's the evidence. And then I go away and do something else, and I'd have no idea whether that whatever I'd done was for any influence on a decision mm. that was made or not. So there's that. There's you know, you're in that. You know, you're in a boots and all when you're in in government, and that's that can be really really challenging at times, really hard work. Um, but I still think, and I reflect on this quite frequently. Um, I still think it's an important place to be if you want to bear influence, have direct influence over how decisions are made. Um, however, the role for um, a non, a role particularly in academia, and you know, I'm, I'm constantly reminding some of my government colleagues of this, is that in, independence, um, so, and, and NGOs as well, but you know, I, partic I particularly talk about academics in this space that, um, they've got a, they've got some privilege <laughs> that they have that level of independence, and sometimes um, also have have quite a voice. They can they can be they can be um, listened to, um, or at least be able to be able to express their views. Um, and they, as I say, they they have a, a level of independence that allows for that. Um, which yeah has has a lot of benefit and also has responsibility. I think like there's there's no point being in academia if you're going to speak for government. Like there's a really there's a clear role there for people in academia and for academic institutions 
to continue to provide vocal independence mm-hmm. in terms of their advice to government and to the community. Um, so I guess I see that as the, the, the there's really powerful, important, complementary roles to play here. Um, academics, and I'll speak to them, they're not, they're not making decisions and they're not, they don't have accountability over decisions. <laughs> so, so, um, so they've got that freedom to be independent, but they've also got the responsibility to be independent. Yeah. And that's a really important complementary role to play against what uh, people in government in particular need to play, where they're actually making decisions, real decisions, but they've obviously got their own um, uh, boundaries within which they have to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point about the you know the responsibility to to act independently as well. Because yeah, I, I have been sort of viewing it as a, a privileged sort of aspect of a, of a role is like the autonomy and you know what what other job do you get to more or less decide the direction you're going to go in for this week you know you know it's quite uncommon really um but it's a really good point that you know it is also a responsibility to do that um to sort of have these you know the, the pillar of government and then and then research and then for them to have very different qualities but they can complement each other i think that's great. So, Jody? Just trying to think what I can add. Um, pros and cons. So, I can, obviously, I can't speak for, you know, having not worked for NGO, and Vicky Joe will have some good perspectives on that. I mean, I'm a collaborator, so in terms of the work we do, I think we need both, and we can work well together, and we just play different roles. Um, yeah, I'd... I, 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 you know, I can't really add much to what Dan said, that Wendy have said about the roles, particularly in government. But yeah, let's let's hear what VJ has to add. I think to that one. Sure thing. Uh, I just want to also mention that there are contractors and consultants that um, we haven't we haven't got here, um, but are also creating a whole bunch of influence. Um, learn, you know, developing best practice and and making their own difference. So that's another aspect of the private sector that we haven't um, picked up here. Um, I, there are two kinds of NGOs as far as I can see in Australia. You know, you've got uh, probably the NGOs that I choose to work for, which are the sort of uh, making change through inspiration and showing by doing. Uh, and the other ones, which are the coffee slamming advocacy groups. And we need both equally. Um, if you don't have that pushing um the outer end of what we need there isn't space for everybody else behind that to actually work so i just want to say that if you have the fire in your belly and you think that's a place where you can make a difference and uh particularly have evidence-based influencing those kinds of groups please consider those as a as a great career uh, option um what I've never worked for government. I've been a consultant for government, but I've never worked for government. And I think the main reason I've chosen to do that, obviously I do, as Wendy says, hate uh, good pay and conditions, clearly. Um, and poor, poor security. I mean, security is such a drag. Um, but it's, it, it is the ability to, as you said, Adam, to have an idea about what needs to happen to be able to test it 
to be able to bring in funds, to be able to bring in partners and in a relatively short period, make something happen. And I have had the opportunity to do that many times in my career. And really that's what has, what's made my career. And it's been the thing that's kept me coming, going out of bed in the, in the morning. And there's some wondrous projects that I've been involved with where that is exactly how it happened. It was like, I see a, I see a need, I bring it together, can make it happen. That is a really difficult thing to do from government. I also would find it really hard to represent some government's views. I, I think at the moment, I don't feel that we have um, a political environment in which I can be honest, even in my position as an NGO, um, but I also don't have to represent their views. So I do have the capacity to at least not <laughs> uh, buy into certain values if it's um, not, not a comfortable fit for me. But I don't think at the moment uh, positive um, constructive criticism is is happening either. So let's not pretend that you can speak your mind entirely because um, there are ways of shutting you down as an NGO if you do that. Um, yeah. And I want to be effective at the end of the day. Um, yeah, that's probably, I think, yeah, nimble is the great value of working for an NGO. And also let's not pretend that some people aren't really uncomfortable about working with and partnering with government, because they are. So that's a place where an NGO uh, can come in. And another thing is I don't have to work in a hierarchy. I can speak to any level of any partner, any government agency, any NGO that I want to. As long as that person wants to get up on the other end of the phone with me, I can make that call. And that is also not a luxury that people inside of government or in some cases academia can do. So I had the opportunity to work at different levels within government itself and sometimes telling government what other people are doing within their own government uh, to make that work better as well. And don't think that I am not used at times to do that very job <laughs> for people inside of government. So the ability to work with just about anyone um, is another great um, advantage of working outside of government. Great. That's a great summary of, 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 uh, of career paths, I think. So we'll, we'll move on to the sort of individual questions now. Uh, we've sort of answered a fair few of them actually, and just in the process of, of conversations we've been having already. So I'll sort of, uh, I'll try and sort of condense it into one major question each. Uh, we might start with Jody. So based on your background in, in sort of environmental policy, what, what's sort of the, the one particular policy or particular project that you've overseen, which you think has had the, the greatest impact? It's a, yeah, it's a really good question for one of the interesting things about coming into policy is that it's, it's hard to, a lot of projects don't have a logical end. Mm. I did and not so much from a positive impact perspective, but one of the few things I did where that was the case was a, I led a review of the native veg regulations. And, you know, that in itself had all sorts, you know, mi mixed sort of perspectives and values and, you know, conflict for me in some ways, but at least it was something in policy that actually was a big job that actually got had an end point and I was very satisfied that that was done. So, you know, one of the best things we've done is what we, we collectively did recently, which was called the Nature of SA. And I believe it had a, a reasonably 
good positive impact. And I think there's still a long way for that to run. I think it will have more positive impact in into the future. And, it, you know, it's one of those things that will last. And I, I guess that was one of the things I didn't mention just before about cons with public service. And it's it's a general comment about how polarised politics has become. Um, you see it everywhere. It's the biggest threat to it, in fact. And and one of the big cons is that you can put a lot of great effort into something, but at the change of government, you can have, you know, public servants can have to change direction completely and basically drop what you were doing, regardless of its worth, really. It just reflects the polarisation. And that's and that sort of happened to us in a sense, but you know, the, the thinking that goes into programs and projects continues on, it's not lost. So yeah, we were doing some terrific work, had a big impact on across the sector, looking at what are we gonna do with nature conservation into the future? Um, it was leading into developing a new strategy for nature conservation in SA. We all, we all know that writing strategies, documents, doesn't lead to the change we wanna see. We all know we're up against it with the, you know, the global systems that we're all part of now and the change that's occurring. So we really opened up the problem and tried to come at it from different perspectives um, and thought about what are some new ways we can think about nature conservation in the 21st century. Um, in particular, you know, really important to recognise the role that climate change is having and touching on what Dan said earlier, that we've had this sense in Australia that we can move things back to a pre-European state. And that's a, that's a worthy goal, but you know, I think it's pretty clear if we're honest with ourselves that that's not possible um, and it's getting harder with climate change. But what we can do is a lot, you know, put our effort into retaining the things that are important that we still have. And there's lots of great things. Yeah. So yeah, we worked on that. Um, and I'd like to think it started a positive impact and there's a lot more to come with that. Um, it's worth sharing that resource with the Biological Society. We produced a paper just outlining some things that we thought were important shifts that we could make. Um, so yeah, we'll make sure we share that. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. And, and when Jody says we, it's 300 people in the sector across the state. So okay. it's a pretty big we. Uh, Jody and I actually went around the regions. Uh, and went to various stakeholders to do that. So yeah, it's a collective royal we. Um, and then to talk about again, this private public, sorry, my dog's about to have a go. Um, uh, the government has, unfortunately for now, um, uh, I don't know what you put it, put the, put the mothballs on that for now, but the ENGO sector is continuing to carry that project. So, um, we're hoping it will turn around and we're hoping it will continue to influence discussions. Um, but yeah, that's another thing the NGOs can do is they can carry these things, carry projects where mm. there might be um, changes in, in government flavour from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. And Jody, your point about the, you know, the polarising politics is really interesting. I think that feeds into a lot of aspects of life at the minute. I mean, even just sort of being an academic on Twitter, you, you see that in every aspect of conversations, you know, even, even just researchers disagreeing over a given point. Um, so, I mean, we sort of lightly touched on, on the next question then for you, Jody, which is uh, about the importance of consultation 
in the development of, of policy. So sort of what, what role does consultation have in the, the overall process? Um, I think it's a given, you know, we, we, we do need to consult and, and these days that, you know, the public's role in policy is, you know, probably a fair bit greater than it used to be. The public service has gone through a number of shifts over decades. And if you, if you, go to policy training sessions, you get introduced to the sort of different, you know, models that the public sector has worked under. And it probably, you know, some decades ago, it very much was an expert model where the public servants were, you know, treated as experts and they tended to do what they thought was best and put that into policy. But we're a long way from that now and public's role is really important. However, there is, you know, there is theory um, and models around how you consult. Mm -hmm from simply informing people through to empowering them to actually grasp, you know, get hold of it and actually run with it themselves. And I think you need to be clear in, in which level of engagement or consultation you actually should be doing for your particular policy, because it's just about being honest. There are times when the government's position is pretty clear and they're not really going to change things a great deal through a consultation process. So there's no point wasting people's time in those instances. Um, other times there's a lot more flexibility and opportunity to bring in the different perspectives and to, you know, to find solutions based on the consultation. So, but it is fundamental and getting back to some of the things that we've said and how decisions are made. One of the uh, neat things that we we've sort of been, um, working with in the last year or so in terms of our thinking around decision making is come out of climate change planning really it was something that some of the clever sorrow guys did and it's really really simple but um this this idea that there's a sweet spot between values rules and knowledge where actual decisions can be made um often we've probably got enough knowledge you know, our, our rules around our legislation and that type of thing are, are pretty well understood and they're actually quite hard to change. Um, but what we've increasingly recognised, and this is where the consultation thing becomes important, is that it's, it's usually the values part of that combination that stops us from being able to make particular decisions we'd like to make. So more and more we find ourselves working in that space. And, you know, I think an example might be, and this one actually goes back to when I was working at Flinders Chase even, is the whole koala issue on Kangaroo Island. You know, in the 90s, it flared up when I was there and you know, it hasn't ever really gone away since. And there was calls to cull. Now, from a legislative perspective, a rules-based perspective, there's not really anything that says you can't do that. Um, the knowledge was clear about koalas having impact on the indigenous species on Kangaroo Island. But we didn't have a hope in hell of getting that decision through, you know, or accepted in South Australia because, you know, of the values component of that decision. So more and more we find that's actually where you have to work mm. to try and, try and get policy or, you know, whatever it is in place. Um, that, that's where the, the real decision power lies. And, and a lot of that stuff, you know, you can't change. You just have to accept that's what it is. And with koalas, you go international, you know, influences. It's not even just a local. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's a hard thing to explain to tourists. 
<laughs> the move, you know, come all the way up here to see the koalas. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, it definitely sounds like policy development is much more influenced by the sort of, you know, ground up value driven aspect than, than maybe people initially consider. Um, so that's, that's really good to hear. Um, so Vijay, we'll, we'll move on to you. So based on, you know, we, we spoke about the different NGOs that you've worked with throughout your career. Um, given that you've got lots of experience with these different organizations, what would you identify as, as the qualities of those NGOs that, that make them successful? So essentially, what, what makes a, a, a highly successful NGO? Uh, that's a tricky question. Because <laughs> um, most people would know I don't spend this long thinking about an answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Well, it's because I'm, th no, I'm thinking about a number of different NGOs that I would consider to be successful. So um, very clear purpose. You know, what do you stand for? What's your relevance? What are you offering your supporters? Um, that's really vital. Um, excellent leadership. Um, you, I've seen great NGOs killed by leadership. I've seen um, lousy NGOs rise through great leadership. Uh, and leadership is internal as well as external. Normally it involves um, excellent collaboration and vision skills. Uh, you need to clearly offer something to others that people want to invest in. So you've got to have that value proposition because they don't run themselves. They need money. They need sustained money. Money is not easy to come by, as you've already heard from most of this conversation. So um, there needs to be a compelling reason why somebody is going to put their hand in their pocket. Um, and most of the time, it's about um, moving heart. So inspiring mind, but moving heart. And I think you've got to have great projects that show that you're real, but the real, it's not just talk, that real difference is happening. So if you don't create and share those stories um, to show that, you know, what you're saying is having a real impact on the ground, because what everybody has said here is that everybody wants to make a difference, then it, it gets lost. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It sort of comes back to what we were mentioning earlier about, you know, having tangible results and these sort of short-term returns on, on our investment to keep people sort of motivated in a particular area. Um, that sounds great. So naturally sort of a lot of these organizations would rely to varying degrees on, on volunteers. So to what extent would you say so that the volunteer base is important for sort of what NGOs do? Well, for Trees for Life as an example, uh, we have um, 3,000 active volunteers currently involved in our program on an annual basis. That's a lot of people. Mm. We have 40 part-time staff, which is actually a surprisingly big organisation for South Australia, um, but um, that's probably about 25 FTE, but 3,000 volunteers. Most NGOs could not do what they do without volunteers, so they're absolutely vital. And it's great to have different um, points in which people can offer their expertise, their time, their labor, their love, 
Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Trees for Life has been so successful because there's a range of different options that suit different people's capabilities and, and attributes and interests. Um, tree, the zoo was another example. I mean, it had 153 staff and like 600 um, volunteers just um, at Adelaide during the kind of working days and thousands of volunteers behind the scene. And we worked out that if you lost 30% of your volunteers at any one time, we couldn't open either of the zoos. Wow. So that's how vital the zoos were, yeah. the volunteers were to the zoos. Can't open without them. So, wow. um, so I would say for NGOs, if you're going to go into that area, consider yourself a volunteer manager because that's what you're going to need to do. Um, and what a uh, privilege that is, to yeah. be honest. Um, love it. Um, they all come with all their different stories, and but they're all there because they want to be. Um, and as for a student, volunteer, 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 volunteer. Uh, and I don't know if everybody, I mean, I, I did hear everybody talking before about their experience, but yeah, that's how a lot of people get their first job opportunity, is by volunteering. You just soak it all in, get out there, um, and, and you'll feel great for doing it too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And even, uh, you know, job, job opportunities, but also just sort of social networks as well. Just that's how you meet people in a, in a given sort of industry or particular area is, is by volunteering most of the time. Um, maybe just like a, an extension of that question then. Do you, have you noticed uh, in your experience sort of any change over time in, you know, sort of volunteer numbers or types of, the types of people who engage in volunteering activities or is it sort of quite stable? Um, I think there's been, an, and there is quite a bit of data around this as well. Um, the bulk of the volunteer workforce in South Australia, which is quite an impressive workforce per capita by national and global standards, um, is largely the retired, you know, uh, retired aged. Um, often the just retired, um, where they're out of the workforce, they've obviously got heaps that they still want to do in a kind of formal sense, but they, um, um, but they, they want to make a choice about what they do. Um, a lot of the people who are middle age are doing uh, captivated in school and sports. So they are volunteering heaps, but they're not volunteering away from the kind of family mm. unit needs. Um, and young people, yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, it certainly has declined yeah. um, over the last 30 years. Yes. Um, young, what, what I'm finding at Trees for Life though, is we're just starting to see like um, young couples and young families starting to come back in, uh, particularly when it's something that can be fitted around the home or um, can be integrated into uh, something else, either a social experience or a cultural experience or a neighbour's experience or, a, you know, some, something else that they would like to do anyway. And this is a great way of doing a value add um, because people want to uh, get involved in community and they want to show their young family, for instance, that um, you can make a difference in the community, you can connect, you can live your values. So, yeah, at the moment in the tree scheme, for instance, where people are growing in their backyards, I've got a, a new uh, surgence of young couples who are getting their first place together. Yeah. And this is something that they're going to do together, um, which is great. I think very romantic, but I would because I married an ornithologist. So. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, you know, any figures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, your observation about young volunteers is, is definitely something that we've noticed as a society. And so without, without, you know, volunteering opportunities program is something that we're trying to address in, in terms of yeah, getting more young people into volunteering, but also kind of coordinating the volunteering opportunities with the types of lifestyles that young people will be having, you know, so mm. how, how do you, uh, you know, often, you know, our members will be students, a lot of them will have part-time work and they can't necessarily just go away on a two week field trip. Uh, or something like that so how do we tailor you know volunteering opportunities to people in in that sort of situation um and so yeah i it's good to hear that there's a little bit of bounce back among young volunteers so uh, yeah maybe we should start doing a bit more competition to see if the younger couples can beat the older couples on the number of something <laughs> they produce or something just you know up the ante a bit but yeah I mean, we're, most NGOs are really interested to hear feedback about what they can do with their programs to make it more uh, accessible for younger people. Um, so yeah, uh, we'd love the Biology Society to tell us um, what they think we can do to make that, yeah, better for your members. Sounds great, thanks. Um, so Wendy, we'll, we'll move on to yourself. Um, so I've got two questions from members. Uh, firstly, what advice would you give to younger women currently aiming to pursue careers in either sort of natural resource management or more broadly sort of biological sciences? Yeah, it's a good question. I, uh, I guess I just feel like go for it. Like I just think it's such a rewarding, um, you know, sector to work in. It's it's um, diverse, it's interesting, it's doing something you care about. Um, I don't feel like there are gender walls. I think, you know, it is a really even workforce um, of men and women, so I don't feel like there's gender walls. I don't know, VJ, whether you feel the same. Um, I haven't experienced any particular, you know, um, downside um, gender-wise. So for me, I just think, you know, think absolutely men, women, get into it and do it because it's awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know who wants to add to that. Anyone? I might just make a comment if I can. I think the workforce generally um, is very even. I really do. I still think that there is a glass ceiling on leadership. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at the number of people who work in NGOs in South Australia and you look how many of the CEOs um, male versus female, so the bulk of the workforce in NGOs are female, the bulk of the leadership is male. So I still, I'm still seeing that, you know, executive, look at the executive DW, still the case. But um, yeah, abs absolutely agree. Go for it. It's only a matter of time before we shift that permanently. Yeah. That's good to, good to hear. Um, so in terms of working with indigenous communities, which is not necessarily something that all ecologists uh, get the chance to do. What would you say is sort of the most important things that you've learned from that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I said earlier about as an ecologist, it's a quite a humbling experience, the, the depth of knowledge you can learn from it. For me, it is all about listening and learning and, and being present. Um, you, yeah, you, it's, you know, um, I, I guess my first exposure was in the fiction Jarrah lands and there, um, you know, the, the cultural leaps are, are big, you know, you have to learn to kick your feet in the dirt and not have eye contact and um, live it their way. Um, and to really, you know, get to know people 
Um, and then you do really just need to open up and listen to them and learn from them and be, be together. Um, and I guess that's what I was saying about the long haul thing. I really think um, people, yeah, you need to be committed to, to the really, it's all about relationships and, and making those connections with people. Um, so lots to learn. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a real privilege if you can get the opportunity to go out and um, work. And I guess the other beautiful part of, you know, both the Pitlands and Arnhem Land is working in intact landscapes is really inspiring as well. Like working in places that haven't been um, screwed over, to put it bluntly, you know, is, it's beautiful. It's, it's really inspiring. So, um, yeah. Again, Jodie's done lots as well. I don't know, Jodie, if you've got more to add there? It's a, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I think it was it was something that really attracted us. You know, I remember when I was younger that I really liked the idea of working out in the pitlands and I did a little bit of language learning actually in my late twenties, thinking I might go, you know, even then might still go out there and do it. Something attracts you to where the knowledge is still strong. Mm. But most of my um most of my recent involvement has been with you know, indigenous people who who live in our cities and towns and don't they don't necessarily have the luxury of that that knowledge they obviously do have knowledge and lots of knowledge and lots of cultural knowledge but it's it's a little bit different and you know just you just treat them like anyone else really or the way i sort of think about it they're not really much different uh, you know they live in the modern world now you know these people and they, you know, they live and work in very similar ways. A lot of them um, do what you can to support them, though, because they're obviously disadvantaged purely from being born Aboriginal in this country. Sadly, that's the reality. Mm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and don't don't be afraid to give them extra opportunities um, because they deserve it. Because they've had so little over over time. But yeah, yeah I'd agree with that. I think. Um, just knowing that it's, it's something so close to, to the large majority of Aboriginal people's, you know, hearts, have, working on country, um, having responsibility, you know, custodian responsibility for um, managing land, it's, it's part of who they are. And so any opportunities we can to increase employment and, um, you know, service delivery of any government work or any, anything that really pulls them into that space, we're better off for it and, and they are too. So I would totally second that. Yeah, that's great. And I think it sort of comes back to a point Jody made earlier about not reinventing the wheel in terms of, you know, that we can acquire knowledge through, you know, the scientific method and making observations and everything, but also drawing on existing experience as well. Hmm. And I think that's the other, yeah, really thing I've come to really um, love is bringing those two toolboxes together. So bringing, and it's not just Aboriginal traditional knowledge, it's, it's um, living knowledge, it's local knowledge, it's naturalist knowledge, it's how you bring together science and um, that local knowledge. Um, you get a far richer picture and a better understanding of yeah, what we need to do to manage landscapes if you pull it together. That's great. So Dan, we might move on to you. So we talked a little bit about the reason for you deciding to switch from an academic pathway to government pathway. We might sort of just branch off from that a little bit and talk about, um, you know, you, so you mentioned the publication focused nature of certain postdocs you were doing and maybe for 
members who are undergraduate might not yet be apparent sort of the, the, the focus that a university can have on publications and that sort of thing. So I guess my attitude to just sort of weigh in on the, the value of publication-based work versus outcome-based work and how those two sort of feed into one another. Yeah, I guess my first point is they're not exclusive. <laughs> um, there is absolute. Um, there's a, remains an increasingly so, a, an important role to play for how um, scientific work is scrutinised and communicated. Um, and that's it's changing dramatically, there's no doubt about it. Like you mentioned Twitter before and, you know, it's a scientist's best friend these days. <laughs> like <laughs> everyone's on it, um, but that that you know, the core of peer review and um, scientific publication remains absolutely relevant. Not only to um, the academy and to the um, uh, the advance of knowledge, but also to people who are looking to apply that information. There's you know there's a there's an absolute role to play around scientific defensibility of information to support decision-making. Um, you know, we've seen what happens <laughs> in politics when um, alternative views that aren't necessarily, don't have scientific rigour, uh, uh, enter the debate. Mm. Climate change, by example. Um, so there is absolutely a role in society generally, and in the academy in particular, for that level of scrutiny and and peer-reviewed um, communication of scientific results. I guess um, where that's, what frustrates me and what frustrated me within that system, but what frustrates me still is the, the strong, the, the primary primacy of that in, in academic career pathways. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to become an academic, no matter what you do, <laughs> no matter what your um, aspirations are, even if you just want to publish papers and you just want to progress knowledge, and that's all you want to do. Um, you know, if you want to, we want to, this isn't critical, but an ivory tower scientist, that's still a really hard career pathway. That's it's bloody hard. <laughs> like I know a lot of people trying to forge that path, and it's really hard. Um, and so to to have that. Uh, so, so to be wanting to do that for reasons of having direct applied impact to whatever it is you're interested in, saving the environment, um, for species conservation, um, to have that as a primary driver for your success makes it even harder because you've got all these other things you need to consider around how do I actually make my science impactful. And there can be tension between science that's impactful because, and, and science that's publishable because um, often the science that we need as managers is very context specific and, um, and may have been applied somewhere else in the past. Mm -hmm. And that stuff's just not that interesting to, <laughs> to the international scientific community. Um, so there can be some tension there. So that, that's, that is a really, that's a big challenge for, young researchers who want to be applied scientists, um, that tension. Um, but as I say, that doesn't mean that that level of rigor in scientific publication should die. <laughs> it's just that there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a challenge there. 
And I think there are some, you know solutions are emerging through that space, like you know um, research funders and research institutions are paying more attention to societal impact with with research, direct societal impact. Um, how they go about measuring that's a weird thing, but um, they'll get there. Um, so that's that's certainly increased even in, you know in the last twenty years. That's really become more of a focus. Um, and I think the culture of academia has changed as well in that um, the soft rewards uh, in terms of what what's expected of people within that culture has changed. Um, so there's a lot more um, encouragement. Increasingly, people are encouraged to communicate their science more broadly, for example. So, you know, that, that Twitter stuff, like, um, people on Twitter are good, good scientists on Twitter succeed or have that's that's something that helps them succeed is being known and talking to the populace generally um, but also increasingly young scientists uh, in my experience are being encouraged to engage with other sectors of the society such as government um, when it comes to the design and application of their science um, so, I mean, I've been involved in the National Environmental Science Program, Threatened Species Recovery Hub, for a while now, for five years, maybe. Um, and one of the most rewarding things for that for me, there's a whole bunch of really cool science that's delivered out of the program, which has, you know, informed a whole bunch of threatened species programs and policies across the country, and that's been fantastic. Dedicated um, threatened species research money is hen's teeth, and so they have a big bucket of money to spend on that, that's being funded by the Environment Department was you know that's really really special experience but the most powerful thing for me was there would have been i don't know pretty close to 50 or 60 phd students and early career postdocs went through that program and every single one of them has been trained to go and talk to people who are going to manage the things their 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 research concerns before they even get out of bed like that's that's step one in their research program is who do I actually need to get in the room who's, going, who's responsible for managing this thing so that we can, we can um, collaborate on this program together from the get-go? And so whatever they end up doing, whether they go to do in government, in NGO, and, or they're in academia, they'll, have, um, they'll be trained to maximise their impacts on, on outside of academia, which is, yeah, really positive. And that's... That's a that's a um, that's an active decision by a research funder to make that happen, and by the and by the senior researchers in that group. They said this is something we're going to get out of this program. <laughs> is a is a is a generation of scientists who think this way. So yeah, that's really positive. Yeah, definitely. And I know you know there's a few different examples of similar programs around sort of funding for postgraduate students. Um, you know, the sort of invasive species. Uh, funding and you know a variety of other ones that that prioritize collaboration and internships and uh, being able to deliver these other skills other than other than being able to produce it you know a really robust paper there's a whole host of other things that's really encouraging that you know it, it's sort of like how you measure a country by its gdp uh, you know, it's this, this sort of metric of success that doesn't tell you the whole story. You have to incorporate a suite of other things. And, and just like, you know, publications, it's sort of a similar thing. You have to incorporate a suite of other skills. Um, so that sounds really good. Um, 
I think in terms of timing, we might uh, we might uh, call it call it close. But uh, I, I feel like uh, we could we could probably continue <laughs> the conversation. I feel like it might warrant a, a part two at, at some point down the, down the line. But uh, hopefully face to face, yeah. Like yeah, that's right. That's in person. Yeah, and barbecue. Absolutely, <laughs> the, the way it's meant to be. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I'm gonna bring the uh, the recording to a close. But I just want to say, definitely on, on behalf of the society, thanks to all four of you for your time, but also, you know, for sharing your experiences and being very honest about your experiences as well. Uh, I think it's really, I've definitely learned a lot and found it very valuable. I'm sure that the members will find it valuable to get just, uh, you know, an upfront view on, on these different sorts of careers. So yeah, thank you very much.